Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. I'm Carol Masser, in for Paul and Vani. Our most read story on the Bloomberg in the past eight hours. It's about Wall Street bonuses and how, once again, those big Wall Street firms are kind of reminding their uh, employer, employees, I should say, and really specifically traders, to kind of temper back their expectations when it comes to those bonus checks. So let's get into it with our own Lenan Nguyen. She is finance reporter at Bloomberg News. She's with us on the phone in New York City. Uh, Lenan, no surprise that this is your most read story on the Bloomberg. Uh, you know, but I feel like these bonus stories and a tempering of expectations have been trickling out over the last month or so. What's up with it, especially in a year where traders did really well for these firms. Thanks, Carol. Yeah, the traders really crushed it this year. And obviously, that's maybe a function also of the markets being so wild and volatile as well. So, um, you know, there, there's a little bit of uh, credit to the traders for doing well, but also, you know, the environment was just better for them. So, um, even though some of the banks really recorded sort of huge, huge jumps in trading revenue, it seems like this year, you know, the banks are going to be a little bit more prudent, a little bit more cautious, and not not make those big payouts. We're hearing you know, from messaging from across the street that, look, some big performers will get compensated, but others um, will not or, you know, will be disappointed. All right. I just want to know what those discussions are like, Lynn Like, is it like the big bosses, like, send a little email around or the big boss tells the boss right under it just to, like, tell your team it's not going to be as rosy as you thought? Like, how does it play out on Wall Street? Um, well, I, I don't think much of it happens by email, but it's a, <laughs> probably it's a, not a kind of it's a telegraphing, right? It's a yeah. signaling effect. You know, we we um, heard about a, a manager at Bank of America who had a kind of Sunday Sunday afternoon call with his team, kind of trying to manage expectations, and that's really important here because you don't want people going into you know Jan Fed thinking they're going to get a forty percent raise in their bonus and then get zero, right? <laughs> so, yeah. Um, you know, it's it's a really um, kind of important signaling mechanism that happens at towards year end and also there's there are a few test balloons as well you know if they if they send out some messages and um you know people are up in arms then managers can go back to say the board or the executive committee and say look you know i need more yeah. i need a bigger pot for my for my guys so um it, it is a negotiation process so i want to make that clear there, there are still negotiations taking place it's not all completely baked yet. There always is wiggle room, right? Hey, is it different though for fixed income versus equities versus, you know, different asset classes when it comes to those bonuses this year? I'm assuming it usually is, but I'm, I'm wondering if this year is any different. Yeah, I think most uh, what we're hearing is that fixed income is going to do better. Um, mm-hmm. And again, this this varies depending on the strength of the bank um, and, and where their skill sets are. But it sounds to me like the fixed income groups are going to um, get more uh, than their equities trading counterparts. Um, so that's the general tone. But again, that is going to vary bank to bank and desk to desk. Uh, this is going to be an unusual year in which uh, the performance and the comp is going to be very, very, um, you know, kind of uh, varied among the banks because of just the strange, the strangeness of the pandemic and the performance. Listen, I love in your story, there's a quote from Citigroup CEO Mike Corbett, um, who's on his way out. Um, but he says, we've got to be mindful of our returns and our shareholders. We've got to be mindful of our environment that we're in and the many challenges that are out there for people in certain businesses. At the same time, he said, you know, we've got to be competitive 
competitive in our industry. Uh, so it is interesting. I feel like it was this way, Lenan, after the financial crisis. There was a real sensitivity out there um, about what was going on across the nation. And it was a tempering back of holiday parties. It was a tempering back of, you know, big time spending by executives at, you know, financial firms. Like there was just a mood reset. And I do feel like that is also going on here on Wall Street. Is that fair to say? Is that also at play here? I definitely think so, particularly for the banks that have large consumer divisions like Citigroup or Bank of America, J.P. Morgan. Uh, It's not a good look when so much of the uh, country is suffering from pandemic and from economic strains to then start paying, you know, huge, huge bonuses uh, to traders. Um, Obviously, some of these will be publicly reported uh, by the the New York government as well, New York City. So, you know, we will have aggregate numbers. And so I think the banks are very sensitive to the fact that if they make huge trade payouts, um, eventually they may face the scorn of the public um, during such a difficult time. So I think, uh, you know, it's also an excuse to be stingy as well. Right. At the same time, if I'm a trader and I brought in a ton of money, uh, five biggest U.S. investment banks on pace for their first $100 billion year for trading revenue in more than a decade, I got to say, I might be like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm just going to say. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a general trader mentality. If you have a huge year, you always want more. Um, and I think the rock well, stars, to be frank, will be compensated this year. Yeah. Um, but again, maybe not all of the rock stars, and maybe they're not going to yeah. get as much as they expect. Yeah, that tempering of expectations. Uh, interesting stuff. And as we said, the most read story on the Bloomberg uh, in the past eight hours. So, Lenan, good stuff. Lenan Nguyen, uh, finance reporter at Bloomberg News, on the phone from New York City. You can check her out on Twitter at Lenan T. Nguyen. That's L-A-N-A-N-H-T-N-G-U-Y-E-N. Always good stuff from her. This column among the Bloomberg Opinion piece is definitely uh, standing out. It's called The She Session, how it's very real, in particular for minority women. And it's written by Luisa Blanco. She is professor of public policy at Pepperdine University. She specializes in economic development, international economics, and the financial well-being of minorities in the United States. So my guess is she has had a busy year and a lot to write about. Uh, Luisa joining us on the phone from Malibu, California. Uh, Professor Blanco, nice to have have you here on Bloomberg. You know, I've had this conversation with uh, some different CEOs, including Verizon Business CEO Tammy Irwin, about how this pandemic is disproportionately impacting women. But as you say, and so smartly and rightfully so, you drill down even further, we are seeing, uh, again, a distinction between white women and minority women in terms of the impact. Talk to us about that, if you would. Thank you so much for uh, letting me share today uh, some of uh, my insights and, and work on this area. I appreciate the invitation. Um, so, yes, so I think, you know, when I hear people talking about the she session, I realize that, well, you know, while it is true, it aggregates all women, right? And at the end of the day, you know, women, uh, minority women, have a different experience, right? And especially when it comes to the, to the labor market. And... Um, so here, you know, when we look at minority women, um, there are several reasons why, you know, they, they are doing wars when it comes to employment and, and being part of the labor force. And it is because um, we, uh, we see that minority women are more likely to work on sectors that have been directly affected by lockdowns and stay-at-home orders, so, and, and less likely to telework. So that's 
one of the first reasons. And the other reason is that uh, minority women are more exposed to COVID-19 and, and more likely to get sick. And then an, another very important reason is that um, given different family circumstances, actually uh, being part of the labor force has been more difficult for minority women because um, they need to take care of children uh, with the closure of uh, childcare and, and childcare centers and schools, right? Um, taking care of children has become very important. Yeah, you know, this is where in a world where we have so many data points, right? But if you look at data on the macro level, maybe it doesn't, it tells you a broad theme or broad story. But as you start to drill down, then you really understand what's going on. And I think drilling down into the data of 2020 is going to be so important, especially as we try to address some of the inequalities, the inequities that are out there in society. So you talk about, you know, family arrangements, taking care of the family, being, you know, exposed to certain jobs where you can't do them from home and having to make a choice between taking care of your family or, you know, continuing work. So I think here we embark on a new year, a new administration. Um, We have a vice president elect who is a minority and, you know, hopefully will fold in all of her experiences as well when it comes to policy. At least it will be, you know, she'll have a seat at the table. So what do we need to do as policymakers to address some of these issues so that they're not forgotten once we get on the other side of COVID? Yeah, thank you for bringing that right up. I feel like, you know, we, we hear all the time about the problem, and that's where I'm, I'm getting tired. You know, we hear yeah. about all this data showing these disparities, and, and it's overwhelming, and it's, it's tough, it's painful, right? And I'm, I'm glad that you jumped right away into the solutions. I, I really appreciate that, because when I wrote the op-ed, I say, you know, I want to talk about the problem, but I really want to spend time on the solutions, uh, because I'm tired of just uh, hearing people talking about the problem, right? Right. So, um, so yeah, I think, you know, as the new administration comes in, you know, what is very important is that uh, we address uh, this labor market disparities. And, and we need to be very strategic because the longer we wait, the more problematic it will be. So we economists always worry about long-term unemployment because we know that the longer people stay out, out of the labor market, uh, the more there is skills atrophy, right? And then also self-confidence, right? So the thing, you know, for the new administration, it is very important that we address especially um, the childcare challenges that mm-hmm. uh, minority uh, women are facing these days. Um, so to do this, you know, we really need to be focusing on the safe reopening of the schools and access to childcare. And to do these, you know, first we need to establish uh, testing and safety measures uh, for uh, schools and childcare centers so that they, you know, kids can go back uh, to school safely and, 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 and parents can go back to work, uh, especially mothers. And um, we need, uh, I think what is very important as we're talking about, you know, vaccines and, 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 and you know, thankfully we, we have that as a hope, right? Uh, we need to set priority for vaccines for teachers and support staff and childcare workers. Uh, I think that's, that's crucial as we're trying to decide, you know, who, who gets uh, the vaccines as, as they come in. Um, and then I think, you know, another important area that we really need to be spending resources is to uh, invest in outreach to encourage uh, vaccine acceptance. Mm-hmm. 
And, um, How problematic is that, Louisa? Like, I do think about, yeah. it's really remarkable. And I, I even was talking with um, members, the head of a um, medical network with all, all of doctors, basically, you know, that the skepticism going into this, that there needed to be some convincing. So um, I do wonder how problematic this could ultimately be for minority women and their ability to bounce back faster. Yes, I think, you know, the issue of vaccine hesitancy is very important. And that's something we need to get our hands right on right now. Because otherwise, if we wait, it's just uh, we're going to miss the opportunity, right? So I think with minorities, uh, there is a a lack of access of reliable information, right? Um, Especially, you know, information that can be uh, language and uh, cultural appropriate. Um, then there is also um, this mistrust, right? So on the government, uh, especially in, in the last couple of years, right? Um, so we have big barriers when it comes to vaccine acceptance. And I right. think that, um, you know, we, and I was going to mention, you know, all these efforts that I'm talking about, you know, establishing testing measures, uh, vaccines for teachers, and then also vaccine acceptance. I mean, um, what we need to make sure, right, that our efforts are focused in places right, with high right. proportions of lower income minority students. Right. Um, so I think, you know, working on, and I, I already been talking with, to some people because I worry about this issue. As yeah, listen, too. it's it's, uh, it's important uh, as we, you know, really dig into how do we come back here and come back stronger and make sure nobody's left out. So these these propositions and, and po- po- proposals that you're really putting out there um, make a lot of sense and for things, certainly for the, poli- for the administration to consider. Hey, Luisa, thank you so much. Professor Luisa Blanco, Professor of Public Poli- Policy at Pepperdine uh, University, joining us on the phone from Malibu, California. You know, it's funny how headlines shift so dramatically because it's just a few weeks ago that we were talking about what uh, will become known as the largest cybersecurity attack in the United States in recent memory. It has to do with those suspected Russian hackers breaching the internal networks of at least 200 customers, including the U.S. government, uh, several agencies within the U.S. government, uh, also private companies and a cybersecurity firm. Uh, And we continue to find out more about this hack. Let's get into it, though, with Steve Grove. He is Senior Vice President, Chief Technology Officer at McAfee. He joins us on the phone from Plano, Texas. Steve, nice to have you here on Bloomberg Radio. It's interesting. Go back even a few years, and I feel like we had a conversation on air several times a day that dealt with cybersecurity issues, and it kind of got pushed back, uh, certainly in a year like 2020 when we had so many other things on our mind. And then solar winds happens, and then we're all reminded that, man, we have huge still cyber risks out there. Hey, hey, Carol, thanks for having me. This really was a wake-up call that hit us right at the end of 2020, and it is unlike anything we've ever seen before. You know, as, as you know, we've seen major cyber incidents throughout the last few years, whether you go back to the Sony hack uh, by North Korea or we saw major worms, uh, such as back in 2017, WannaCry, impacted businesses across the globe. Uh, But what makes this so unique, and in in many ways, I I almost think of this as a cyber Pearl Harbor, is it it gives the Russian or the suspected Russian actors uh, what we call hands-on keyboard access Mm -hmm. to a large number of very important U.S. government as well as private 
private sector uh, organizations really all at the same time. And, and that's something that we haven't yet seen. Well, so explain that for us a little bit more, Steve. When you say a keyboard um, attack, what does that mean? It sounds to me like it gives them access, like if I was sitting down to any of those systems in front of the keyboard and had the access. But explain it. This isn't my world. It's your world. So explain what the significance of that is. That's exactly right. So think of it as it creates a virtual connection between a human cyber attacker sitting somewhere around the world into one of these very sensitive U.S. organizations where they can look for assets of opportunity to steal or look for systems of opportunity to implant malware. And because it's being executed by a human as opposed to a pre-programmed playbook, it can make on-the-fly decisions to ratchet up the lethality of the attack or to identify assets that are much more valuable from an espionage perspective uh, than something like WannaCry that we saw in 2017, which which was more analogous to, to like a dumb bomb where... It, it ran the same code everywhere that it landed, and we knew exactly the damage it did. In this case, Department of State, you might have a Russian actor stealing very different information from Department of Energy, and every organization it's going to be a little bit different. Well, what's interesting, too, is do you think this was a solar winds problem? Because let's remind everybody, it was, you know, a supply chain attack or a third party attack. That's how it's been described. The initial target, right, wasn't the U.S. government or some of those other institutions, but one of its software suppliers. So shame on um, solar winds, shame on the U.S. government for maybe not being more careful with its supply chain. What is the lesson to be learned here? And just got about a minute or so. so. So the main lesson is that there's no single thing that we can count on in order to defend our environments. Uh, we need good defensive technology. Uh, we need to scrutinize our suppliers. We need to have well-trained people operating our cybersecurity defense. It, it's a little bit like driving a car safely. You want to have the right technology, seatbelts, airbags, anti-lock brakes, but, but you also have to pay attention to what you're doing or else you can still get into an accident. And making sure that you have all of those components is something that we'll have to look at more broadly uh, across the industry. Yeah, I do wonder just quickly, too, I mean, just what happened here, right? I mean, we all know that these problems are out there. We've got to be careful. I just Is it just somebody... <laughs> a major screw up or something more significant? Because I know SolarWinds, you know, has come out and said, listen, we were warning people of some lack of security. And again, sorry, just about 30 seconds. Yeah, it, it, it comes down to we all need to up our game. So software suppliers need to scrutinize their development process, uh, the way that they're operating uh, their own environments so they don't become the avenue for uh, nation states or, or other cyber criminals even to get into environments through legitimate software. So right. Every legitimate software maker needs to up their game. All right. Good stuff. Hey, Steve, thank you so much. Steve Groban, he's Senior Vice President, Chief Technology Officer at McAfee. He is joining us on the phone from Plano, Texas. 
want to talk a little bit more about uh, the trade today with a guest who's got some specific thoughts when it comes to the global airline industry. Frank Holmes is with us, CEO and Chief Investment Officer at U.S. Global Advisors, Investors, excuse me, U.S. Global Investors, with uh, some $534 million in assets under management. And he joins us uh, on the phone from San Antonio, Texas. Frank, nice to have you back here on Bloomberg Radio. So um, let's talk about the airline industry. I think they are just counting down the days till there are a lot more uh, flyers and passengers and consumers ready to get on planes, but it's going to be at least a few more months before we get to even something close uh, to normal. How do you see it and where are investors kind of positioning money right now? What are you seeing in terms of trends? Well, one of the first things is just to add to uh, the data points you gave, uh, Jets ETF is a $3 billion uh, ETF now. Um, and yeah. so you mentioned 500 million. That was just the uh, mutual funds. The ETFs are, are bigger today. And that's been a phenomenon for the mutual fund industry as a shift has gone to ETFs. Just has been a phenomena since March when it hit $35 million and grown to $3 billion. Uh, and, and it's forward looking. Everyone's forward looking on this of anticipating 12 months. So what happened after every other crisis that we've had for the past 30 years, and the airlines industry seems to bounce back within 12 months, 80 to 120 percent. So we've seen a lot of money come into the airlines through the jets as a product, which I think is most fascinating, betting. And then on this weekend, we had 1.3 million tourists. 1.3 1.3 million, even with record uh, COVID neg- negative numbers. So people are moving. Business is not moving like uh, it's, it's not booming yet. It's going to take a while. Everyone's zooming when it comes to business transactions. But tourism is up substantially. The major airlines are rerouting their, rather than going through a hub, they're going nonstop from Pennsylvania, New York to smaller uh, cities right down to Florida. Uh, same thing, you're seeing Southwest go from Phoenix right down to Cabo St. Lucas. So help me out kind of where, I mean, listen, this is, you can't market time, but it is about timing the market here when it comes to when you think, you know, truly air travel gets back to normal. It's the same thing for the hospitality industry. I mentioned Carnival uh, before we got going. It's, you know, everybody's trying to kind of make their best guess. We know things will, as dark as they may feel now and may get a little bit darker as we get into January, um, that because of the vaccine, we have started to kind of map out our playbook for getting back to normal. But again, it's a timing issue. So uh, at this point, you don't think it's too early to put money to play here when it comes to those big airline industries. I mean, which if you look at them individually, Delta is still down 31% this year. United is down 50% this year. You know, I could kind of go on. You can, right across the board. And, and if the economy gets back to where it was, uh, America flying 2 million people a day, the total was 2.7 million people, 700,000 coming in from Asia, Latin America, and Europe. Uh, but 2 million people flying a day, as we saw that, drop down to 90,000 in April. The busiest airport in the world at that time was in Anchorage, Alaska, shipping medical equipment to North America and Europe. Uh, it's all changed, and it's all improving. And I think you have to be optimistic and take a look at the G20 countries, uh, what their sort of this MMT is called, Modern Monetary Theory mm-hmm. of Printing Money. But they're all doing it collectively. It's not one country is devaluing de- de- the country's currency against another. They're all doing it collectively to fight this third world war called COVID. And, and that is basically showing up in faith and hope in the economy. 
Well, and the thing is, though, listen, this is contingent on, you know, I just saw another headline, I think it was Chile, uh, coming up and finding, you know, uh, the first case of Chile announcing its first patient with a new strain of COVID-19. I mean, this is an angle that maybe we weren't all ready for, Frank, and I do wonder, we'll have to watch and see where it goes. The expectations are, at least we've heard early on, that the current COVID-19 vaccine will take care of these variants, but it's just a reminder that it's going to take a while for us to completely feel you know, comfortable maybe about moving around in the world. And more importantly, business travelers, a smaller percentage of airline passengers, but they are typically twice as lucrative, right? They contribute so much, maybe as much as 75% of an airline's profits. That's going to take a little bit longer. So we're going to have to be patient to see maybe that impact when it comes to the airline's bottom lines. Just got about 30 seconds here. Well, the big part we forget is that the, all these uh, additional fees they've been charging, and, and they can ramp those up for tourist traveling as they get back and push back to 1.5 million people flying a day, uh, getting that and the 500,000 of business travel. Uh, that can come later because they made so much money. The ancillary fees were massive. Right. Uh, and they were true. And so bet on those. Yeah, listen, airlines have gotten so good at, at uh, charging us for everything. Hey, Frank Holmes, thank you so much. Have a happy new year. CEO, Chief Investment Officer at U.S. Global Investors on the phone from San Antonio, Texas. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.